0: So are you guys interested in, uh, in learning a little here today? All right, so here's the deal. Some of you are going to learn some things here today that you have never heard before. No one's ever taken the time to explain them to you. And some of you, you're going to learn some things here today that you've been hearing your whole life haven't gone to church, read your Bible, things you've been hearing your whole life, but no one's ever made the connection between them. They're just sort of these like little gems that you have of belief, but no one's ever tied them all together for you. And the truth of the matter is, some of you are going to learn some things here today that you'll wish you had never heard because of the implications that they have on your life. And they offer a a certain accountability that you'll have to wrestle with to decide what what am I gonna do with this? So we're all here to learn. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what church is for come and challenge our soul and ask questions and wrestle with the implications of what we are learning about the truth of God's word in our life and you know if we're not here to learn then we're just really we're just going through the motions we're just playing a part we're just pretending to be something that we're not and and you don't want that I certainly don't want that so So let's learn a little bit. Um, So last week we started a a new discussion here at Sybil Creek entitled Thy Kingdom Come. And it's a look at the topic of the kingdom of God as it's described or presented in the scriptures. And um, last week at the start of the message, if you weren't here last week and you haven't heard the first message, I would really encourage you to stop by our website in about 35 minutes. Listen to uh, the first part of the series because I think it was really important foundation to what we're going to be dealing with this whole month here in December. Um, But a couple of things at the start of the message last week that I would just wanted to kind of get you oriented to the topic. The first thing is that this topic of the kingdom of God runs through the entire Bible. Really, beginning from Genesis all the way through revelation the, the the theme of the kingdom of God is perhaps the single most common theme throughout the entire Bible. It was central to the life and the message of Jesus, and certainly the whole backdrop of both the Old Testament and the New Testament are, are done in are written in the backdrop of of a kingdom. Uh, the second thing that I wanted you to understand is that uh, to sort of uh, manage a discussion about the kingdom of God, there's these four elements that we have to keep in balance in the discussion. There are four that we, we have to um, consider. Uh, first of all is the ruler. That's the monarch. That's the king or the queen, the one who's in charge or oversees the kingdom. We have to understand a bit about them. Then we have to understand a bit about the rule that's the subjects of the kingdom that's the people who live within the influence of the ruler then we have to understand something about the rule that's the way that the king goes about managing those that he rules and the the experience of living in his kingdom or her kingdom and then finally you have to understand something about the realm what is the reach of a kingdom. What is its boundaries? How far does its influence or authority extend? And so last week we looked at this idea of realm. Today, I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about the rule as it relates to the kingdom of God. Um, There was one other thing that I wanted all of us to be aware of in last week's message about the kingdom of God is that as it's discussed in the scriptures, there's really like three dimensions that it's talked about. It's all the same topic, but depending on where you might be reading in your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, a certain passage, maybe dealing with just a dimension of the discussion. The first is that sometimes you'll see the kingdom of God described as the sovereign reign of God over all the universe. This is the idea that God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the great king of the universe. He's created it all. He sustains it all. It all lives in subjection to him. The, the second way in which the kingdom of God is discussed in the scriptures is this eternal kingdom of God on earth, a new heaven and a new earth that we read about in prophetic scripture, the eternal kingdom of God on earth with Jesus sitting on the throne and ruling the world. A lot of history has to happen before that experience is real, but... We wait for that in anticipation of the truth of the scriptures. But the third dimension that you'll, you'll run across the discussion of the kingdom of God in the scriptures is the one that we're most concerned about or interested in in this series. And that is the submission of a hum, of human beings to the reign of Christ in their life. The discussion of the kingdom of God where a person decides that Christ will be their king now. And they'll live in submission to his rule um, as their king. And um, that's really at the heart and the soul of the gospel and the the message of uh, particularly the New Testament. And a little bit more of what I want to talk about with you today. So we left last week with this. The kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus in the hearts and the lives of humans who invite him to take up that role in their life. Or the rule of Christ in your life as king. As a person makes a decision to recognize Christ as their king and submit themselves to his authority. That is the kingdom of God as we understand it in our experience today. Does all of that sound familiar? If you were here last week. Okay, so we read this. Our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Now, if you may recall, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus gives them what we know today as the Lord's prayer. Um, He said, yeah, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, I I don't think that Jesus was giving them um, a set of words to memorize and recite as the only way to pray. A number of different clues in the scriptures that would tell me that Jesus wasn't interested in creating religious ritual. He was really providing like a template, an outline around which you could build your thoughts as you experience prayer. And and first thing he's teaching us is that you come to prayer, a conversation with God, but you understand him to be your father He loves you. He cares for you. He's committed to providing for you and to protect you. Our father, he lives in heaven. He's a spiritual or or, um, heavenly domain that that he exists in. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come to our father, but we recognize who he is. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we come with a a certain um, attitude of respect and reverence. For who it is that we're talking to. Our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. This is really the heart of the prayer. Thy kingdom come. The the prayer is being invited to ask God to bring his kingdom somewhere. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Remember the ruler. The ruled The rule thy kingdom come and how thy will be done your wishes, your desires, your design. Thy will be done down here on earth as it is in heaven. So the prayer is invoking God to bring his kingdom to this earth. And the way in which that's done is that that person submits themselves to the will of God. The desires of God. The design of God. But it says. Thy will be done on earth. Like your will is done in heaven. So for us to really practice the prayer. To really understand. Its impact on our lives. We have to ask ourselves this important question. How is. The will of God done in heaven. What does that look like. Because we can't ask God to. For his will to be done here on earth. If we don't recognize how his will is done in heaven. Does that make sense? So. um, Evidently. There's a certain way. In which things are done in heaven. And the more we understand about that. The better we'd be able to then apply. How God's will would be done here on this earth. So, So what can I tell you about that? About the way that. God's will is done in heaven. First of all, we have to understand this, that heaven or the kingdom of God is not a democracy. Okay, Um, God's will in heaven is not decided by popular vote. It's not represented by elected officials or legislative representatives. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. It's not a democracy. The the Bible or, or theology would describe it as a theocracy. And a very simple definition of theocracy is God's will done God's way. God's desires, God's preferences, God's designs, God's instructions, God's will done the way that God intended it to be done. That, that is what we know about how the kingdom of God works. It's a theocracy. That's not necessarily very popular in our contemporary society to think that we, we don't get a say in it, but like I was telling you last week, not my kingdom. Not my rules. All right. It's God's will done God's way. So then we're still left with the question: well, then what, what is what is that? What does that look like in heaven? Well, that's a great topic. And we could spend uh, a month of Sundays just trying to decide what is God's will look like as it's done in heaven. Um, so I To help you i had to think through okay so how how would i go about really coming to grips with what i'd understand to be how god's will is done in heaven and and here's the three categories that i i had to look at the scriptures through the first one i had to ask myself what do i know about the nature of the character of god what is he like what are his virtues What is the nature of his character? Because we know this, that God would never do anything. God would never allow anything that was inconsistent with his character when it comes to his kingdom. Does that make sense? Secondly, as I read through the scriptures, what are things that God approves of or that God affirms? What are things that we see God celebrating? Like I like that. I approve of that. I I give you my seal of approval on that sort of behavior, that sort of conduct, that sort of character. What what could I learn about God through what he approves? And then thirdly, what are the things that we see in scriptures where God instructs or commands people of faith to live or act a certain way? Because I can learn something from that. So if I take... These three categories, the character of God, the things that God affirms, the things that God instructs. I, I could start to get my hands around this idea of the will of God done in heaven. Does that make sense? Did you follow that? Okay, so here's here's a list. This isn't all of them. This would be some of the most important ones. Things that I learned from the character of God, the instructions of God, and the things that God affirms. I, I'm I'm positive that the way things are done in heaven is always in keeping with the truth Uh, i'm positive that heaven is a place of love that everybody relates together in a context of love why because john tells us that god is love he he can't do anything other than act in loving ways god is a god of grace compassion Talks about humility, like understanding who we are in relationship to everybody else. Heaven owns a humility of respect for one another, a spirit of submission, obedience to the instructions or the commands. Heaven's a place of integrity. A place of sincerity. Everybody's like real and authentic in heaven. Nobody's pretending. Nobody's a hypocrite in heaven. That doesn't exist. There's a morality that exists in the culture. A a, an ethical way that people relate and behave. Unity prevails in heaven. Uh, People in heaven are faithful. That means they're responsible. Uh, There's nobody lazy who's taking advantage of the resources of everybody else. Everybody does what exactly they've been given to do in the context of the kingdom of God. It's a place of peace. There's this, this kind of relational harmony that exists because of the unity, the love, the grace, the compassion. It's a place of respect. If you look at that list, could you imagine that? Yeah, most likely that's what heaven would be like. Could we agree to that? Okay, flip it over. We could look at it by way of contrast. I'm pretty sure there's no deception in heaven. No, nobody's lying to each other. Nobody's trying to manipulate each other by by shading the truth. It's not a place of hatred. We know that arrogance would not prevail in the kingdom of God. It's a place of humility. Rebellion doesn't happen. Disobedience doesn't happen. Uh, there's no immorality happening among the ranks, right? Okay, there, there's, it's all ethical. There's no unethical practices happening in heaven. Um, everybody's responsible. So there's no irresponsibility. There's no uh, disunity or discord. There's, there's no disrespect among the inhabitants of the kingdom of God. Agreed? okay so if we we take this list the positive traits of the way that things operate in heaven did you know that the bible actually has a single word for all of that and and whatever else we might include the bible has a single word that describes the essence and the nuance of all of those things perfectly portrayed. The Bible has a single word that when you say it, it captures the essence and the ideal of truth and love and grace and compassion and humility and morality and integrity and, and peace and respect. It's, it's all captured in a single word. Would, would you be interested to in know what the single word is? It's the Greek word, the Dikaiosune. The kaiosune. And it's translated righteousness. Righteousness is a single word to describe the best and ideal of all that is good and right. Um, Here's a Paul Wilson definition of righteousness. Righteousness is the right things done the right way at the right time. With the right motives and the right attitude. The perfect portrayal, display, demonstration. The perfect display of truth. And compassion. And grace. And love. And unity. And morality. And ethics. That's that's what righteousness is. And so it's interesting that as you study the person of God and what he invites as far as his people throughout the pages of the Bible, guess what word prevails? The word righteousness. Look, look at this. These are, just, these are just a few examples of many. That the, the only ones we really have time for. Deuteronomy. He is the rock. Speaking of God. His works are perfect. All of his ways are just or fair a faithful god who does no wrong righteous and just is he psalm 11 for the lord is what he is by nature righteous all of the things perfectly done for the right reasons the right way at the right time with the right motives for the right attitude he is righteous he loves justice and the upright will see his face Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Here's the idea of king or kingdom. The Lord reigns. Righteousness and justice are the foundations upon which he reigns. It's it's the very nature of his rule. Psalm 119, your righteousness is everlasting and your law, it's true. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all all of his ways and faithful in all that he does. Isaiah 28, I I will make, I love this. He's using um, construction terms. He says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness will be the level. It'll be how I gauge if in fact something is the way it should be. It's in a perfect balance. Righteousness will be the level. Look at this, Revelation chapter 15. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. Here we are, king of the nations. Just a couple of examples. Over and over and over again, God and the way that he behaves is described with the word righteous. So then, then it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus comes along and he says... Seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. Seek first as a matter of highest priority, the rule of God in your life. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then seek his righteousness, the perfect portrayal and balance of all things right and good truth and compassion, and grace, and love, and unity, and respect, and morality, and ethics. Righteousness. Would you like to learn a little bit about righteousness? So righteousness, the word righteousness, or dikaiosune, is a legal term. It came out of the court systems of the first century. And it essentially means this, that you live in adherence to the established law. So, um, you know, in our society today, we, we, we might call somebody who, you know, honors the laws. We would call them a law-abiding citizen. In the first century, a law-abiding citizen would be referred to as a righteous person. Now, set aside the, the spiritual connotations of that. They, that was just the social term for a law-abiding citizen. They were a righteous person. Now, if a person broke the law, What would happen is they would come before the judge in the courts. Their attorney would present a defense of what it is that they had done. The judge would then decide if, in fact, the law was broken. And if it was broken, very formally, the judge would pronounce that that person, the the criminal, the lawbreaker, he would pronounce them to be unrighteous. You, You are no longer fitting to the standard of the society. You've broken the law. You are unrighteous. And then the judge would decide uh, uh, the penalty, a fine to be paid, uh, time to serve in prison, or if your if your, uh, violation of the law was severe enough, you might face the death penalty. So it's, it's interesting. This is this is, a little, this is free. Okay, this little tidbit. You know how did how did Jesus die? He was crucified. Well, it's interesting in the context of those days of Jesus's life, the Jews lived in subservience to the kingdom or the empire of Rome. And while the Jews were allowed to practice their faith and some of their religious laws, to some extent, one thing, one of the laws that the Jews did not have the permission to do is they did not have the permission to enact the death penalty. Only Rome was allowed to do that. So what happens the Jewish authorities, they want to get rid of Jesus. They come, they bring Jesus to the Roman authorities and say, this gentleman, he's, he's guilty of blasphemy. He's stated that he's God. And what do the Roman authorities do? So that, that's not a serious offense. That's a Jewish thing. That's not a Roman thing. So go and deal with it yourself. So what do they do? The Jewish authorities, they find another way to accuse Jesus of a more serious crime. What do they do? They bring him back and say, this gentleman said he is the king. He is a king of the Jews. Well, that was a serious crime because the Roman empire, they only had one emperor and nobody could compete against him. And so the proclamation that somebody thought they were a king, they they were guilty of treason. And treason was a punishment by death. So Jesus is crucified. but if you broke the law in the first century you were now a lawbreaker or unrighteous person and you lived to tell about it you paid the fine or you did the time then what would happen is when you've finished paying the t- the fine or completed your time in prison you were brought back into the court your attorney would describe to the judge the offense the, the payment that had been made. And then the judge again in a very formal sense would say. That you are now again a righteous person. You've been restored to the status of the law. Does that make sense? You want to learn something even more interesting? The declaration of righteousness was a formal pronouncement. But the whole process of you coming before the judge, found guilty of breaking the law, having to pay a fine, and then being brought back into the court and being restored as a righteous person. That whole process had a word for it. You know what the word is? You ready? Justification. To be declared righteous is the process by which somebody is justified. They found guilty. They paid the price. They are restored once again to be a righteous person. Now, If you know anything about your faith, if you've been reading your Bible at all, you go, huh, I think I recognize that justification. This idea that a person has been pronounced or recognized as being restored to a place of righteousness. And it all starts to make a little bit more sense. Wait a second. When the Bible describes the nature and the impact of sin on the human heart, one of the words it uses to describe us is that we are lawbreakers, sinners. And standing before a holy and righteous God, we we will be found guilty. When we stand before a holy righteous God and we found that we have broken his moral laws for human beings and therefore we are guilty and a price must be paid. D- did you follow all that? Okay, it, um, remember that word justification? Do you remember? I just explained it. It's like less than a minute ago. Remember? I, I want you to take that word justification I want you to put it in your pocket because we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. In fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say to them, he's coming back to that in a little while. Go ahead. He's coming back to that little while. Remember that word justification. But one of the things we have to appreciate and one of the things we have to do business with is recognizing just how serious the standard of the law is when we're talking about a holy and righteous God. We, we have to recognize just how severe his judgment is in relationship to what he as a holy, righteous king demands of his subjects. So we, we, get a, uh, we get a bit of a picture of that throughout the Bible. Here's probably one of the most disturbing. Jesus said, for I tell you that unless you're what? Your righteousness, all of your very best behavior done for the right reason, the right way, at the right time, with the right motives and the right attitude. For unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, wait a second, who were they? They were essentially the moral Marines of their day. They were the best and the brightest when it came to living out the, the, in adherence to the, the Mosaic commands. Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the best and the brightest, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus kind of nets that out for us at just about like how absolutely severe it is. He says, you've heard it said, your rabbis have been telling you for centuries, you've you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And anyone who does murder will be subject to judgment. And we go, yeah, that makes sense. But I tell you, Jesus is describing what he understands to be about the character of God, the nature of his holiness. He says, for I tell you that anyone who's angry, just just anger toward a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I'm not talking about murder. I'm talking about just being ticked off at somebody. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, it's it's a derogatory term, it'd be like calling somebody a a rude name. Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool. Now, we we don't say it that way, do we? We go, you're such an idiot. Anyone who says to them, you're such an idiot will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's how severe the righteous standard of a holy God is. Look at this. You've heard it said, the rabbis have been teaching you, you shall not commit adultery. And so you you rest in the laurels. Well, I've never done that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully You've just imagined it. You've just fantasized it. a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He, he's already committed a sin. A, he's broken a law that's just as serious in nature. Look at this. James tells us, if you really keep the royal law found in the scripture and the royal law being love your neighbors yourself, you're doing right. That's righteous. But, but if you show favoritism, you just prefer some people over another. You find yourself catering to a certain group of people to their advantage over another group of people. He says, if you show favoritism, you, you sin and you're convicted by the law as what? Lawbreakers. But whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at at just one point, just one point, you, you didn't get it right all the time for all the right reasons and all the right ways with all the right motives, with all the right attitude. If you just stumble at one point, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. So the Bible describes the truth about us as human beings. All of us, we've become like one who is unclean. We're not even allowed to be among the general population. This is the idea of like a leper who lives on the outs reaches of town because he, he's unclean. And all of our best efforts to do the right thing, to be a good person, all of our righteous acts, they're like filthy rags just to give you a small idea of what that's about culturally it's essentially rags that you would find in the bathroom all of us all of us he says paul in the book of romans says there's there's no one who's righteous not even a single one not a single person in all of history has met the righteous standard of a holy God. In fact, you want to know what the standard is? You ready? The standard is be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, that's the standard. You see, to be perfect means that I do it the right way for the right reasons, at the right time, with the right motives and the right attitude, all of the time, I I never fall short. I don't know about how you're feeling right now, but it would be completely normal and natural to say, "Well, Paul, that's impossible. I I can't be perfect. I can't get it right all of the time in every way. I I mess up and I." I I do stupid things and I make lousy choices. I I never, I, I don't stand a chance. Exactly. That's exactly the point. The truth of the scriptures reveals about the nature of sin and its impact on our lives to bring us to a place of realizing I can't enter the kingdom of God in and of myself. I need help. I need help. And without God's help provided through the gospel of Jesus, we don't stand a chance. Do you get that? Okay. Are you listening? That's where Christmas comes in. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. I mean look at this if you in case you forgot, you know? Look at this. Matthew tells us in his account, th- this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. Oh yeah, yeah, his his mother Mary, she was pledged to be married to Joseph, a Jewish arrangement. But before Mary and Joseph came together in a in a relation in a union of marriage, she was found to be What? She was pregnant through the Holy Spirit, a a divine work. And because her husband Joseph was, watch this, a righteous man. He was faithful to the law. He, He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, which he was entitled to. He didn't want that. He loved her. His heart was broken that evidently she had she had had a relationship with someone else and she was pregnant. And So he had a mind to just bring it to a, an end, just divorce her quietly, just we'll go our separate ways, we'll just forget about it. And in that confusion and in that hurt, but after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here's the exciting news, Joseph. She will give birth to a a boy, a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which is just a, a contemporary form of the jewish name Joseph. i mean uh, joshua which means salvation is of the lord to give him the name jesus because what because he will save his people from their sin he will rescue them from the guilt of the laws that they've broken before a righteous and holy god he he will save them The angel said to them this is the shepherds in the field in the night that Jesus was born the, the angel said don't be afraid now guys i'm here i got great news good news that will could be a cause for great joy for all people why because in the town of david a, a, a savior a savior has been born to you he's the messiah the one that you've been hearing about for centuries and he is what he's the king this king has come to earth for a purpose. And that was to save. To save who? To save us from what? From the guilt of our sin before a holy and righteous God. You see, Jesus. Jesus is the way that we are restored to a righteous standing before a holy God. Without him, we don't. Again, it's, it's the message of the gospel. We read about it in the Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in a relationship with Christ... The new creation has come. God started something new in them. The old is gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This message to share with other people that God was reconciling the world to himself. And how was he doing that? He was doing that in Christ. And what is the nature of what he's doing? He's not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. It's like God was making his appeal through us. So we implore you, Paul writes to the church. We implore you on Christ's behalf, whatever you do, be reconciled to God. And here's the heart of that reconciliation. God made him, Jesus, who had not broken any laws, he had no sin. He he became sin for us so that we in him might become what? The righteousness of God. So Jesus takes our sin and then he hands us his righteousness so that we might be restored to Dekaiosune before a holy and righteous God. Romans. Now, we know that whatever the law says, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, whatever it says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. We'll all see that we don't keep the law. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. No, nobody's going to appear before the king for the pronouncement of righteousness. No one will be declared Righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, by just trying your best to do the commands. Rather, it's really through the law that we become conscious of just how broken we are. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been, it's been revealed, it's been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through, through faith in Jesus. To all, to anybody and everybody who will believe that, who will trust that. There's no difference. We're not talking Jew or Gentile. We're talking humans. All have sinned. All all have broken the law. And all come up short to the established standard, which is the glory of God. (laughs) But watch this. Remember that word in your pocket? All of us are... (gasps) justified we've been through the process we've been justified and what did it cost us nothing it was free cost Jesus everything justified freely by his grace through the price that was paid the redemption that came by Christ God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. A, pen, a payment for the penalty. A sacrifice of atonement. How? Through the shedding of his blood. To be received by faith. By what I trust. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. At the present time. So as to be the just one. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You you can't miss it. Jesus is at the center of the message of righteousness. You know, if you're a Christian and you study your faith, one of the central tenets of historical Christianity is found here. It's this whole idea of what's called substitutionary atonement. Big word. Throw that around at lunch tomorrow with your friends at work. Here it is. Here's, Here's the essence of substitutionary atonement. Jesus paid the penalty for my sin by dying on the cross. That was the penalty incurred for the seriousness of my offense by dying on the cross in my place. Why? To appease the righteous demands of a holy God. I'm brought before the judge and I'm found to be guilty and a penalty has to be paid and and, in the seriousness of my sin, I deserve to die. But my attorney is Jesus. And I come back into the courts and I stand before the judge and Jesus on my behalf and my defense says, Father, I paid the price for him. I suffered death on the cross to satisfy your righteous demands on his behalf. And he's trusted in that. He's believed in that. He's put his faith in that. And the judge will announce that I am the kaiosune. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. Therefore, therefore, since we've been what? Justified because we've been through the process and our price was paid by our Savior, the substitute Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem. Therefore, we've been justified through faith. We we have peace with God. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live under the burden of condemnation and guilt and shame. We, 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 we are safe and right with God. How? Through Jesus. Through whom, I love this, one of my favorite lines in all the Bible, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This is our position in life. This is our posture in life as ones who, whose life is covered by Christ and his payment for our sin, we, we stand before a holy, righteous God and all we know is grace. It's, it's, our, it's our place in life now. Does that make sense? That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Christmas is about. And I can't think of a better way to celebrate that than sharing together communion with you. Underneath your chair, you'll find the elements for communion. I invite you to come here with us to celebrate the justification that's been provided for as lawbreakers before a holy and righteous God. In the top half of the elements, you find a cracker. You said that this bread is to remind you of my body which is broken for you. This bread, you ready? This bread is substitutionary atonement. It's Jesus. It reminds us of Jesus, his body on the cross for me. I'm the one who deserved to be there. He died in my place. That's why Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread, don't forget me. As often as you eat this bread, do this, Henry. Jesus. The cup. The cup is to remind us of the blood that was shed. Jesus' life emptied on the cross. He died for sin. Paul teaches us that the blood blood reflects a covenant that God the Father made with God the Son where God the Father, the righteous King of the universe would accept the death of Jesus as being sufficient payment for the sins of the whole world. For as often as you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of Jesus. For since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through Jesus our king through whom we've gained access permission to come before our father in heaven to enjoy grace in which we now stand I invite you to stand in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ our Father in heaven we bow our heads and our hearts in humility when we see all of this come together and find Jesus at the center Jesus, that baby born in Bethlehem those many years ago who was a savior and a king. God, thank you for his work on our behalf that through him we can be justified. Found guilty of our sin and yet our price paid by him as our substitute so that we might stand before you and be pronounced righteous in your sight. God, this Christmas season when we cling to Jesus, our King and our Savior. Pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great Sunday. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle